Hello and welcome to Power Talks Season 3, the Lockdown Edition. Power Talks are short, powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. Today we are joined by Des Brown, CEO and founder of Spark to Life. We talk about the criminal justice system, youth work, young people, faith groups and how COVID-19 has changed the game. Welcome to Power Talk Season 3, Lockdown Edition. And um, today I'm really happy to have uh, a guy I've been wanting to get on for a while. Um, I seem to be saying it all the time. Everyone, I've been, like, I've been trying to get this person on. And basically now everyone's on lockdown. They've got no excuse. If you ignore my emails, then it's just rude, isn't it? So, But this guy I've been trying to get on, he's doing amazing work. Um, Des, would you like to just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and the work that you are currently doing. Okay. Uh, yep. Hi to all those that are listening or watching. Uh, yeah. As introduced, my name's Des, uh, Des Brown. And I work, uh, or I'm a CEO actually of a charity called Greenleaf Trust, but the project primarily sparked to life, which I founded in 2006. Uh, took it on kind of full-time because there's a little bit of history in regards to my work before I was working in a youth ministry capacity in a church in East London working with kind of 11 to 19 year olds so it's out of that that Spark to Life got birthed and so yeah we now work with anything really from the age of 10 to 25 uh, with those caught up in the criminal justice system looking at individuals that may be uh, looking at prevention um, i.e. in school even in the community and areas of intervention so we'll kind of get contracts from local authority, central government, get various different grants. And so, yeah, we work across primarily East London, a little bit in Kent and a little bit in Essex. So you're currently working in the criminal justice system. And obviously, in this current time of COVID-19, this must be quite an interesting uh, period for the clients that you're working with, the young people you're working with. And I don't know if this is something which picked up in the media but how has this impacted your work obviously with covid the face-to-face stuff i'm imagining has stopped and yes we can look at that on a daily basis in in society and in, and around our communities but from a criminal justice perspective that must be extremely tricky and difficult how have you managed to maintain and engage with your client base and what is the kind of feeling in the criminal justice system around this issue yeah, that's a very good question, broad question. I think for us, as a grassroots charity, um, what it offers is a level of agileness. You know, we can be quite creative. I think every crisis um, offers opportunity for creativity. Um, and I think for us, what we've had to be is quite innovative about how we do certain pieces of work that we're contracted to, to do. What's been quite positive is a lot of the contractors um, have honoured uh, their, their, their kind of funding which meant that we didn't have to furlough out of the 17 staff we had only one person who was part-time we furloughed and that was only about a week ago so the rest we've been able to keep on so we've obviously transitioned to um, online mentoring most of which is over the phone um, also when we're doing our detached work which was out on the street we kind of decided to get mopeds so we used money that we had to buy mopeds to get our workers out there, bought some bikes, again, so they could go out there, got our workers, key work, letters, 
um, so they didn't get kind of stopped, albeit they have. But um, they've been able to show their ID. Hold on, let me just jump in there. So even though you guys um, are working to keep the streets safe, engage with young people, um, you still kind of been impacted and been stopped by the police for being out there doing yeah. your work. Yeah, there's been a few situations that have happened. Um, yeah, so that's happened three times now. Um, wow. Our workers have been stopped. Uh, but this has happened to us before, um, even before COVID-19. Some of our workers have been stopped, been searched, even though they've said in certain boroughs that they work for Spot to Life, showed ID, was with a young person in the car. And I think it's because, again, all of our workers are, well, with the exception of one now, all of our workers are Bane. Um, and sadly, there is that lens that certain institutions um, and individuals will look through um, and they will kind of target a certain demographic and most of our workers are, are young black males um, and so yeah they've been stopped on numerous occasions and what it does is it enables us to constructively challenge the system um, but it also reminds us of why we do what we do so kind of transferring into COVID-19 um, I think somebody rightfully said that more often than not and again, not trying to make it about the police, but when we're looking at issues to do with social distancing and kind of civic peace or civic rule in a time like this, um, if we're not careful, we can over-criminalise individuals. Um, and I think what we're aware of for the young people that we're working with, they appreciate the phone calls, they appreciate the input. And um, it's a slightly different dynamic because obviously you're used to working with people face-to-face, -face, especially if it's a first-time entry call that can last anything from 30 seconds to a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah. who are you? Why are you calling me? No, I'm not interested. Or who are you? You know, you're chatting to someone and it's like, well, did I ask you to call me? Uh, but there's referrals that we may get. And so our workers are fully aware of that. We talk about different ways to engage. We've even gone as far as getting remote control cars so that we can work with people that might be in care, that whole sense of social distancing, taking them out for an hour mentoring them through like remote control cars which again you know it's a little bit more than just having a chat yeah. um, so just stuff like that that has really helped us but I think across the board some of the cohort that we work with you know rightly or wrongly some of them have had to navigate because of their uh, lifestyle choices you know issues to do with you know police getting stopped getting searched so nothing's changed um, for us, it's changed because we're not used to that. We go out not with a mindset of saying, right, um, per se, I might get stopped. I need to navigate this area or this space. I need to kind of divert away from my ops um, or I need to bally up. But now people can bally up and it's all right. They, do you know what I mean? They're used to that lifestyle anyway. So for us, it's more about using it as an opportunity to talk to them about some of those things. So that's a really interesting point when we talk about change. Because obviously, COVID has transformed the game for everybody on multiple levels. And some would argue it's a leveller. I mean, I think we can we could probably delve into what is a level and what isn't a leveller. But that's very interesting that for a lot of young people, in terms of having to be more aware of what's going on, like with authorities and stuff, that hasn't actually changed. What has the impact been with your young people in the prison system? Because obviously from the outside world we have to practice social distancing 
um, we can't engage in the way uh, that we would be normally like to engage. And I tend to put people into two categories. You're either inconvenienced or, or you're suffering. Mm. I definitely feel that we're in the inconvenienced, well, when I say we, me and my organisation, we're in like the inconvenienced camp. But I, I, I do often think about those young people who the face-to-face contact with organisations like yourself or family members has now stopped. Um, mm. I don't know what the kind of emotional and mental and even physical health of your client base has been like in this last seven-week period. Yeah, I think, again, for those in prison, we haven't got a, a large number but we're in contact with a lot of prisons and we have a number. I think what's interesting about prisons is that prisons work through systems and structures. So more often than not, I've been spoken to people that I know that are working in prison. Some prisons are doing quite well or the offenders are doing quite well that are in there, partly because they know when they're going to get their association. They know they're going to get their phone call and they know that there isn't a disparity between them and the next guy who's on the wing. And I'm talking generally about prisons as it were because um whereas before when prisons operating as usual you can always just kind of you know twang an officer can you get this or someone's got a little bit of extra uh, whereas i think now it's like no nope, this is what's happening this is when it's happening and anyone that's in chaos they actually need boundaries to help them sometimes stabilize so i know from some young offender institutes that I've had conversations with people that work in, in there from a pastoral point of view, not from an officer's point of view. That's the message that they've given me and they've been quite surprised. I think that the, the fallout of people's emotional mental well-being within a prison context will probably come out a bit later, especially if they've lost loved ones um, or you know they can't connect with uh, loved ones. Um, and likewise, I think that in itself can create challenges and it can it raises challenges for us even now um, that are functioning, especially if, for instance, we work with clients that, you know, um, haven't got the resources, whether it's through social media, you know, they haven't got a smartphone and stuff like that. So that can create challenges to, to engage in different ways, which I think can affect someone's emotional mental well-being because um, you're not seeing what's going on, you know, um, especially if you just come out of prison, which is one of the big questions. People that have been in prison that are coming out now, you know, they're not they're not going to necessarily have a smartphone, mm. um, but they're cold. But 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 they're, they're told, you know, they've got to stay in. They can only go out x amount of hours a day. Um, can only go out for these reasons. It's like house arrest. So that will be a challenge. And so we've got to try and make sure that we're kind of engaged with our cohort to make sure they've got the necessary resources to still function. Yeah, no, that, and that, that is really helpful to just give our listeners an understanding and a little bit of perspective of what it's like. Um, now, obviously, you're, how long has Spark to Life been going for? Yeah, so I, I kind of, I, I founded it in 2006, and it, that's when I was in uh, youth ministry. So I was a, a youth pastor working with, as I said, uh, kind of 11 to 18-year-olds to in East London, in Walden Forest initially. Um, and so we had about 80 to 100 young people every week. We've done overseas kind of missionary work, uh, done a lot of leadership development training, created what I would call community communicators, went into schools. But Spark to Life got birth specifically because it's not faith-based and it's outworking. It's very much about looking at, um, you know, people that are facing challenges, especially young people or young adults, 
and how we can best support. And I kind of brought into that my lived experience and what I would say the cultural competence. Yeah, I mean, again, there's so much things I want to touch on here. So one, first and foremost, would you say that this is a very busy time for you? Because what I get a lot, I mean, Powder Fight has only been going since uh, January 2019, although lots of the work, I would say, has been happening long before that. But people sometimes say to me, it was not in the sector, oh, you know, oh, is this a quiet time for you? And I don't know if it's what it's like for you, but it's, it's almost like, it's busier than it's ever been. It, whether mm. you're dealing with like training or mentoring or engaging with young people and families, is that something you would you, you would see as well? Yeah, I think for me personally, as a CEO and probably for my kind of managers, it is because there's a lot of logistics, infrastructure, especially around IT, making sure things can function properly. Then there's a lot of communicating to kind of. Uh, leaders within local authorities, councils, where our contracts lie, making sure that they know how we are functioning and also us trying to be informed on what we can, not so much what we can and can't do, but um, yeah, what they're expecting of us to making sure that that's, that's being done. But also there was a lot of talk at the front end from all the different kind of voluntary sector, I think, about, look, we're here to help. We want to be able to support in any way we can. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, fantastic, we want your help, but then nothing was coming back. I think it was because everyone was in this state of what do we do? How do we do this? What can we do? What can't we do? And some of that's obviously coming from the government. So for us, it's been very busy from a management point of view. We've been fortunate enough, as I said, to be able to keep our workers on. But I think in regards to kind of mentoring, referrals have been a bit slower coming through from local authorities. Um, So we've had to, again, be quite innovative about looking at not just the phone calls, but that kind of, okay, what can we do for families? If they've got any friends, one of the things we talked about with our, our um, kind of service users is have they got friends that are in need or family members that are in need so that we could give them the resources to help a family member. So it's that whole sense of empowering that young person to see that they can help even in this situation. Because it is about helping them, but also I think it's about empowering them to see that they can help, even if they get the finances or the resource from us. But I think it brings that sense of self-worth, that self-esteem, that value, that actually you can do something in this season um, to help a nan, an aunt, a neighbour. Um, and little things like that, I think, can be really significant. That's, again, that's very helpful. One of the things which I'm, I'm picking up and I'm noticing and I know you have seen it as well because we're kind of part of the same networks, is the almost crabs in the bucket mentality for funding, uh, especially with a lot of smaller organisations like ourselves. Um, And just how, I don't know, just kind of how are you responding? Because from my perspective, um, there's a real potential to lose focus with Mm. the amount of funding streams which are now available. And the, t- the temptation for me, and I know I've spoken to others about this, is that you somehow adjust what you're kind of called to and what your USP is just to make sure you get money. And I suppose mm. my, my feeling is that that's not always helpful. So I suppose the question is, what is your feeling around the, the, the multiple grants which are coming out um, off the back of COVID-19? And how are you kind of just uh, navigating through this minefield field of grants and applications and stuff? Mm. Yeah, interesting question. I think for us, 
as I've mentioned, we've been quite fortunate with our funders in honouring their, their funding. We've had to look at our outputs and our outcomes. But it's also allowed some of us or some of our, for those that are funding us, have given us a level of creativity on how we spend certain money. Um, hence, we moved into kind of buying mopeds so that we could still deliver a service that we were contracted to. It's enabled us to then get, whether it be, uh, you know, um, shopping for a family or families or, you know, the multi-control cars. Um, and it's, it's enabled us to be a bit more creative. So we've not had to say, right, we need more money. We've had to say, how can we strategically use the money that we've got? Because we're going to have to give a report back to our funders that have said, we've paid you from this time. We want you to do these outputs. You may have changed your outputs, but what have you spent that five grand on or that 10 grand on that you said you was going to use for this, but you haven't because of COVID-19? What have you used it for? Um, and so what we've tried to do is, again, for us as an organization, and I'm sure most of the same, we're very integrous with how we kind of manage our finances and very, very transparent to the people that fund us, partly because... That's part of our whole ethos anyway. Um, but I think it's important that you don't get, like you said, sucked into, well, there's money here, there's money there. Um, unless, and I, I use the word unless, because, you know, when we, probably similar to yourself, when you first start off, 5,000, 10,000 pounds is a lot of money for a charity that's, 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 that's um, kind of just pioneering, that haven't got reserves, that may struggle with cash flow. So for me, we haven't got an issue with cash flow and I think if we was to go for funding like that, we're stopping small grassroots organisation accessing that funding. And for me, that's an ethical situation. So we haven't done that because we've not had a need to. Mm. And I haven't chased that because, again, even though it's there and we could think of new things, um, it doesn't really, you know, there's a, a term that I'm sure you're familiar with. You can easily miss, miss, mission drift. You start doing things that, like you said, aren't really your kind of, you know, your 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 focus um, or your USP, and so what happens is you start chasing the money. And I've learned, yeah, if you do that, you definitely will mission drift, and you won't be effective. Yeah, I, I think that's. I would agree with you, and I think there's a whole another conversation about the grant system, um, who's being funded. I'm I'm, a, I'm, I'm going to be doing a, a season three power talk with uh, an organisation. A charity so white um, just because I think there's a real interesting conversation to be had around BAME grassroots organisations not always been able to get the money that they mm. need to do the work on the ground and it tends to go to the bigger organisations, the white-led organisations and I think there's mm. a conversation just to be had there so I'm interested in seeing where, where, where they go with that um, I suppose it's also helpful, and you can say as much or as little about your kind of history. There's always, I'm always interested in people's stories, full stop, but I'm always interested in people's stories about how and why people are so passionate about the work they're doing. I tend to, again, I, I like categories. I, I don't like categories because I don't like people being boxed. But what my experience is that when people tend to do the work that you do or even myself, it's either because I'm really compassionate and really empathetic about a situation and I want to get into it, or I've got some lived experience and I think I can not just give something back, 
but actually add something which isn't there. I don't know mm-hmm. what what's your. It might be a combination of two, but what what's kind of like your 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 story? As much as you know, you don't have to, you know, tell me the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, just before I go into that, just on that point that you mentioned about the small grassroots BAME organisations, um, I'm part of Clinks, um, and, and my role is uh, representing, to some degree, as best as I can, the kind of BAME. Uh, cohort, especially within the criminal justice system, but also the small, the, the small grassroots organisations. What I find very interesting, and it's not just necessarily for the Clinks Forum, because I think you know what it's doing is a great work. Um, but it's all new to me. But you're in a space where small BAME-led organisations never get into, hmm. and you're hearing the conversations that are being had, and they are conversations that are for larger, more medium-sized organisations, which is probably three million plus turnover um and you don't get either black-led organizations or organizations that have people of color leading those organizations that have then a cultural narrative or a lens that can speak into that being able to make decisions and being able to access that funding and so what's often the case is it's what's done to us not us being able to say right what we can do because we're kind of fighting for pots of money, five, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds, um, which doesn't be wrong, it is good. Um, but there aren't any large black led organizations. So they're not, that I'm aware of anyway in London, um, that are then at that space to be able to challenge the status quo. So, so it's interesting, it, you should talk about that. Oh, okay. I mean, this is. I know I didn't answer your question. No, 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 it's fine. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. Because I think this is a really important conversation to have because I suppose the people, there's probably, there's a few small to medium sized organizations. Like I'm CEO of, of my own charity, you're CEO of a charity. There's, there's other people we can mention who, who are uh, managing directors or CEOs of, of smaller organizations. But I think you're right. The medium to large ones, I don't know many CEOs or, and therefore that puts us in a, in a bit of an interesting space. Now, without trying to stereotype too much or generalize, for us to kind of come together with smaller uh, black or BAME led organizations or come together on anything, traditionally is not something which is known to work out that well within mm. um and I, when i say the black community or bame community i know we're we're not a monolith so i know it's not that straightforward but there would be a stereotypical view that oh, we don't actually do well collaboratively um is that though the only way that maybe we can start getting a seat around the table is that the is being more collaborative the best way to maybe get the bigger amounts of funding in like you said, there's a lack of cultural competency often very much when we're dealing with these particular issues, which in a London context, at least, seems to disproportionately impact black children. Do you think, that is one, do you think that's one of the ways that we could actually, the more we get around the table, the more influence we could have, or is that still not quite where you would go? No, I think it is one of the ways. I think there's a network that I'm a part of, the uh, Black Men for Change Network, which is it has that specific intent. And again, you've got individuals from all uh, shapes and size organizations. You've got 
you know, activists, people have been around for years that have been fighting the good fight on this cause. And now there's a there's there's a, an understanding that you know coming together, having a collective voice, can make an impact. And there's stuff that's happened historically, but maybe haven't lasted the test of time. And I think that's something as a community we need to work through and, and talk about. But I think also there is that aspect, and I think the other way of, of of doing it as well is it takes a while. It's sometimes it's finding allies. You know, when you're a, a small black organisation, you haven't got privilege. Um, you haven't got those connections per se, but there are people that would ally themselves with you that are white, that would believe in what you're doing. They would see within the sector there is disproportionate of injustice. There is structures that are institutionally racist and, and they themselves want to ally themselves with you because they want to help you on the journey and they are the connects. And I think you know, whether it's a large organisation, a medium organisation, an influential person, they, if they see this injustice or they want to support grassroots black-led organisations, they need to ally themselves with the likes of us and say, look, let's check out what they're doing. Are they, you know, um, ethical? Are they, you know, effective in what they're doing? And if they are, I want to create room for them. Where I've got privilege, I want to open up doors. And yes, where I've got access, I want to open up doors. And I think that's the other way. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it is... The collaboration, like you said, it is kind of like the idea of like your the network you're part of, um, black men to change. But yeah, the kind of allies of engaging with uh, maybe white-led organisations or other organisations is what I would call cross-fertilisation. And I think that's something which we've all got to get better at, like trying to just find out where there's commonality. So I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, because I do think it's tricky. I just think it's really hard. I think it's a very complicated space as someone who's been in this space for a couple of years now um, and I've worked for other charities. It does feel like there's a monopoly of... Um, there's a monopoly mm-hmm. on funding. It's, it blows my mind. There's a monopoly on funding and a lot of the people who are getting the money, the cultural competency, I'd have a question about. I'm just like, okay. So I think it's a really yeah, interesting yeah. model. Um, okay, so I suppose there's a couple of questions. Like we can talk a little bit about your like your history, but I suppose the other thing, yeah, you've mentioned a few times that there's there's like a, a church background, even though you're, you'd say that your organisation isn't faith based, um, but you have a, a a very good understanding about how churches work. Just very quickly. Mm. In the in the context of the youth sector, youth violence, the stuff which is very topical, what do you think uh, the church can bring to the table in being part of the solution to this issue? Well, COVID nineteen or the criminal justice system as a whole. the criminal justice issue. I mean, I think yeah. I mean, I'm happy also for your perspective on COVID nineteen as well. But I suppose specifically around, there's been a lot of conversation about how I've always, in fact, not even a lot of conversation, I've led that conversation to say, do you know what, churches have got buildings, they've got resources, they've got volunteers. Um, if they can be trained and equipped, could they be part of the solution to the issue? Um, I think that's easier said than done. Um, and history tells you that for that to really work well, that's going to require quite a lot of work on the ground. I'll just be interested in your opinion on that. 
Yeah, so okay, I'll tie in a little bit of my background coming into my faith experience. So basically, wasn't brought up in uh, any faith expression home. Uh, Mum was an atheist. Although my dad was a Christian in Jamaica, he fell away, came over here, um, i.e. the UK, thought that all Christians were hypocrites. And as I always say, he kind of joined them, which meant he went church, you know, Easter, <laughs> Christmas, dressed up in a suit, come back. Well, I think, where's my dad gone? What's he been doing? So he never told us about, you know, kind of Christianity or faith or anything. So anyway, so in my growing up, I was, you know, I've got two, two brothers. Um, we was very, uh, I could say for myself, and I was very delinquent, very active, just as a boy getting involved in petty stuff, crime and whatnot. But as I got older, it began to escalate, got involved in taking drugs, selling drugs. Nothing major. wasn't associated with any gang because I'm going back to the, to the 80s now, early 90s. And it wasn't that kind of thing then. Um, that said, though, violence was. And so I got involved in, in violence from quite sorry, a just, young age. Just, the age sorry, to cut you. Stabbed. Uh, sorry, sorry to cut you, though. On that, just on, when you say, I think it's an important point. When you say in the early, late, late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't that type of thing. Just for our listeners, just expand on that because um, some people might be thinking, well, how, why is it not that type of thing? Isn't it, you know, drugs, you've mentioned drugs, violence. What was the difference in the 80s and 90s to what it is now? Very, if you can <laughs> say that in a quick way. Yeah, I think just, yeah, I mean, in a quick way for me, it was, you know, uh, postcodes have become, or areas have become smaller. So although you might have had different areas, like you might have had, I don't know, Forest Gate had tension with some like Ilford or, or, or you know, you know, unless you was from an area and you was involved intentionally saying, I want to be a part of this, apart from maybe just getting, you know, like any young people or group of young people saying, who are they and whatnot, they wouldn't class themselves as a gang. So there's a few gangs in quotes, and I use that word specifically, that would name themselves and they would be a gang. So when you're moving across areas, unless you're involved in a certain lifestyle, you're not going to stick out. So me being involved in drugs, uh, me being involved in the level of violence, me associating with certain people brought me into that. Now in this day and age, you don't need to be involved with drugs. You don't need to be associated with a certain amount of people. It could be based on where you live. That pulls you into that. And so you find that people have got less choice because of where they live, because who they know, what school they go to, who they're associated with. Now they're classed as being a part of this group or a part of this gang. And they can say, well, I'm not. Um, and genuinely, they're not. Um, whereas I think in my time, you didn't have those tensions. You know, you could live on a certain area, on an estate or whatever. Unless you chose to get involved, you can just keep moving and doing what you're doing. You're not going to get sucked into that kind of, yeah, mm. that label. So for me... The choices that I made got me involved in crime. Um, and, you know, fast forwarding from about the ages of, say, 13 to 17, whether it's street robbery, burglaries, um, fights, brother's face got cut, had 29 stitches, nearly lost his eye, um, which again shifts your mindset, your whole attitude, your whole outlook. Ended up taking someone's life through a conflict um, within a park. Again, it wasn't a... Um, enemy of mine, somebody I'd never met, but because I had a lot of pride and I projected an image and an attitude that was very much about don't disrespect me, don't dishonor me, or don't cross me, it meant that I was very quick to draw. And also taking drugs, albeit it wasn't a primary thing in my world, it does affect one's mental health. Um, and I don't say mental ill health, but mental health as in the way I saw life, the way I saw myself, so whether it's cocaine you're taking 
or you know whether it's, it's it's certain types of weed it can make you feel certain ways which then affects the way you outwork um circumstances or situations so for me it was on quite a, not a lot but i was on speed at the time so again very kind of quick very reactive very much of i'm in control here as i said sadly ended up taking someone's life ended up going through the criminal justice system went brixton um went went felton in the midst of all that came out on bail when i came out on bail um I then got introduced to faith, Christianity. And at first I wasn't really interested because I said I was my own God. I decide what's right and wrong. Um, in the end, to kind of, I was with my girlfriend, who's actually now my wife at the time, I said to kind of keep her quiet. I went along, first time ever in a church, had a powerful faith experience. Um, so much so that it shifted my moral compass, shifted my outlook on life. It was kind of like a Damascus Road experience. And for those that don't know what Damascus Road is, is a kind of a, a point in the Bible where somebody who was against the church had this powerful experience. And so their whole life changed. And now they're helping the church. Not that I was completely against the church, but I, was, I wouldn't say I was on God or anything. Um, and yes, yeah, so that really it kind of caused me to put down the knife, think about kind of forgiveness, um, not thinking about revenge. Because while I was out on bail, I got stabbed twice. Again, something completely different. I had lots of enemies. People wanted to take my life. My life was in chaos. Family had to move. I mean, it was a real kind of mess. My brother's in prison. He ended up going in prison when I went in prison. It was just, just, just mess and chaos. But what, 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 what faith brought to me, as I, as I said, it shifted the moral compass. Um, and it made me make a clear distinction between what's right and wrong. Now, some people say we should know what's right and wrong anyway. I think it gave more absolutes than what's relative or what's subjective. Um, and I think if, if we come with subjectivity in our definition of what's right and wrong, then we've all got different views. Um, some people think it's right to smoke drugs. Some people think it's not. Some people think it's right to say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which, again, is Old Testament. Some people don't think it is. Um, so I was very much about, do you got know what I mean? I'm not going to get revenge. It's not an eye for an eye. It's about forgiveness. I need to forgive myself. I need to forgive other people. But also, the thing is, I needed forgiveness. Um, so I went through, went to the Old Bailey. Um, should have convicted and condemned I'll plug that because my story is very complex very long just say that bit just say that bit again because you just cut out a little bit but you went I got to the point where you said you got to the court and you should have got and then it kind of went a bit funny so just say that again just in case people didn't catch that bit yeah Okay, so basically, they, they just to bring context, is at the Old Bailey, Crown Court, looking life, basically on a murder charge, so you can get lifed off. Um, so they've got a choice between life, or, you know, they could go for manslaughter, or they could go, which, very unlikely, self-defence, etc. Um, but yeah, so said not guilty for murder, went guilty for manslaughter. Manslaughter, you're looking, sadly, the man whose life I took, and was a soldier, his dad was a policeman in Scotland Yard, it was national press. Um, had that, you know, everything was against me, including myself. But what faith had brought with a clear perspective, a sense of hope, sense of realization of change, rehabilitation, because I think rehabilitation starts inside, um, you know, um, and that had happened, and that had happened through um, Christianity. And so what happens there is I get a two year custodial in the end. And I say in the end because there's a point where actually I got two years probation. I came out, ended up going back in because they took me to the court of appeal but that's why I plugged the book because unless you read it it just it seems too complex <laughs> what's the book, what's um, the book called like what's, what's the, now what's yeah. the book called 
Plug the book. Was it? Was it called? It's, it's yeah. It's called convicted or condemned. So it's it, it's that play on you know. Often we want people to feel condemned when they've done something wrong, but I think they should be convicted, and and so that's in a a, a criminal justice sense, but also it's in a spiritual sense, a faith sense that God doesn't condemn us, but He does convict us. Mm. And when we're looking at working with people like myself, who's gone through the system do we really want to condemn them or do we just want them to feel convicted of what they've done wrong so they can change be rehabilitated i'm aware i've done wrong that emotional intelligence coming or coming alive to say actually this is wrong i shouldn't have done this not well because you don't realize that i'm going to condemn you therefore i want i want you to feel pain do you got know I me mean? do we want revenge um on people because of the wrong that they've done do we really want to punish them so they can never be free and i'm a case in point hence that's my passion and my drive um, for spark to life, but I had to uh, work through a lot of character issues, and that's where I think definitely faith coming to Christ, being a minister, transformed all of that. It brushed off all the rough edges that I had, um, and so then going forward, like I said, ended up doing two years custodial. Um, but yeah, came out, you know, a completely different guy, um, and I've been working in prisons for the last last twenty years, even you know, was a chaplain um, in a prison uh, for 12 months, albeit a sessional chaplain. I'm still going to prisons now, was recently in a London prison because I'm now a trained therapist um, in person setting therapy, working with individuals in prison. Um, so what it does is it just gives that. And, and I mean, again, it's interesting because, you know, I've had people lock me up. I've been in situations where you look in life and now going in there with keys in itself, there's one lady that fought for me for two years. I said, you've got to give this guy's keys. You've got to give him keys. Two years later, finally, someone in the MOJ, I don't know who it is, turned around and said, all right then. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's so now just, I'm going there as part that, of the solution. Yeah, that's redemption. And it's a mad, like, circle. Of just, just, well, it's just, you know, it's what the Bible talks about, isn't it? Um, the redemption, the forgiving mm. nature, the reconciliation of, of, of Christ but also the fact that he will use people who people don't expect to be used to, mm. to, to bring this message of, of peace and reconciliation. Just very quickly, um, it's just, every time I hear your story and your, and your book is amazing, I will plug it myself. Um, I think out of your experience, if there were like maybe three things you could say advice, advice to churches um, or even faith groups, it's not just churches, but um, I know that's your experience, in how to engage with some of the young people who are really on the edge, the, the young people who are really more likely to engage with some of the, the criminal justice issues we've been talking about, or even some things you've experienced. What advice would you give them in, in how to engage? Okay, I think, good question. I think you've got to make a decision, whatever faith group you are, um, whether you, firstly, to employ a youth worker, a youth pastor, a youth minister, whatever you want to call them. But then they have to decide, do you want to work with young people in-house or do you want to reach young people out-house? Because they're completely two different types of work. If you work with people in-house, you can empower, develop and equip them to become the agents 
to impact their schools and their communities in a way that's constructive, in a way that's positive. If you're thinking I need to work with the people outhouse, you've got to ask the question, how much of that is about helping them and how much of that is about sharing your faith? Um, because again, they're two different things. If it's about helping individuals, then it's looking at, okay, are you yourself equipped, trained to be able to do that? Um, and that's where the church or faith group can get behind and see this as an outreach, see this as a uh, investment in the community. Or if it's about them being able to say, look, my faith is relevant to these issues. And we've got to be aware, especially when we're talking about people of colour, majority of them, whether it's their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, will have an experience of faith. And it's part of their heritage. And I think it's doing them a disservice in a society that we're talking about trying to embrace culture, people's heritage, of saying, well, we can't share that because we're in a secular society. Because what you're saying is your heritage, your culture, your history can't be shared in this context. It's personal and it's private. Um, which there's some truth to that. But I think when we look at the journey of people of colour and we look at what they've gone through, um, faith is significant part of their moral compass. And I think also what it does do, we live in a society that looks at behaviour modification. But what I've come to understand, what faith addresses is issues of values, what's right and wrong. I will do which I will behave based on what I determine as right and wrong. So what we believe in Spark to Life, and it's not through an issue of faith, it's through an issue of belief, is I need to tap into someone's belief, not just trying to address their behaviour. Because I knew how to play the game. I knew how to change my behaviour in front of my parents, in school, in the criminal justice system. It's called navigating the system. But it's only until my, my change that affected my values that then affected my behaviour. And I think that's where faith groups, faith organisations, churches can really have an input around working with some of the hardest to reach individuals. Why? Because they behave based on what they believe that determines their values. That's why you can speak to someone and say, yeah, I don't mind. If someone's disrespect me, I, 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 I will kill them. If someone's done this to me, I will rob them. Do you get what I mean? That's all about values. What I see is right and wrong. That comes from my belief. So what is my belief? And that's what I think it comes down to the belief of an individual. That is, um, you get me really, passionate on that one, bro. Listen, that's, 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 that's the trailer right there, bro. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> no, that's really, it's really helpful. And I think it is, I think the behavior modification is what I call behavior modification versus heart transformation. Um, mm. And what tends to happen is that churches, criminal justice system at schools every institution is all about behavior modification but like if you really want to change mm. values morals and heart like you said what's my heart towards that individual what's my heart towards this particular circumstances that is going to require something beyond you <laughs> is what i would say and uh, and it mm. requires uh, and that that's where it gets a little bit different like if you if, like even if we take it physically if i've got a heart problem like a physical heart problem 
I can't do anything about that. I've got to go to a surgeon mm. to open me up, clear out my vows or whatever it is. You know what I mean? And I think spiritually, it's a similar thing. Without me getting too passionate about this, often it's like, let's look into ourselves to be the answer. And I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to look yeah. into myself to be the answer, man. Yeah. Like, I'm, not, I'm not convinced I've got the answer, but this could turn into a sermon, so I'm going to stop. But, um, mate, this has been like really, really, really helpful. And um, thank you so much for your, your time. Um, is there any final words that you'd like to say? Anything that you'd, you'd want to leave us with? Yeah, I just think this even on that last conversation, it's interesting. We talk about the criminal justice system. That's one of the few places you will go now and part of your induction and part of how you go don't ask you it all unless you're on, God forbid, your deathbed and I need to read you your last rites. But they ask you that in prison. Um, and, and prison's a point or a place where people will reflect and haven't been in prison and worked in prison. And I've worked in, you know, some of the uh, in the prisons, but I've worked in quite a lot of key prisons, definitely in London, just outside. Um, you know, people talk about faith. People are about business. Um, and I just feel it's a question and a conversation that needs to be had that will help people on the journey of rehabilitation. And for me, you know, thank you for inviting me on. And it's been a privilege just to be able to share a little bit of my thoughts, my views, and obviously my organisation. Uh, bless you, man. Thank you so much. Um, you're definitely a person who I, I admire and respect. Um, there's some things we're working on together, which we'll keep to ourselves for the time being. But um, it's good, man. God bless you. Um, <laughs> and and uh, we'll, we'll speak soon. No doubt, bro. Nice one. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Bless you, Ben. Speak to you soon.